Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,863. Ladies and gentlemen, today it's Ferrari time and we're going to be talking about the most collectible car on the planet, the Ferrari GTO. Buckle up. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm back in Thornberry in the UK with a very special returning guest here on Cars Yeah by the name of James Page. Hey, James, welcome back to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. We'll have some fun. Now, for regular listeners, if you go back to guest number 1,267 back in 2019, before the whole world turned upside down uh, with the pandemic, uh, James was on the show. We talked about uh, Aston Martins at the time, if I remember right. That's correct. Aston Martin DB4 GTs. Ah, the uh, the wonderful call. Well, now we're going to step it up a notch, I guess, depending on what kind of mark you like. But we're going into the upper, upper echelons of car collectability. And we're going to be talking about the Ferrari GTO. Now, I asked you before to share something that most people don't know about you. So, uh, you know, we're far from the Aston Martin when you get into collectability with the GTO. Now, that that Aston, of course, is a very collectible car, uh, but the GTO. But maybe before I introduce you again, what's maybe one little thing that you learned that was a super big surprise about the Ferrari GTO? Actually, that there was still so much to learn about it, to be honest, because when I started the project, people would say ah, 250 GTO, surely everything that is going to be said about the GTO has already been said. Right. And that turned out not to be the case. So that was that was both a nice surprise and a good start to the project. Very cool. Very cool. Well, let me give you a proper introduction again here, and then we're going to dive into what you learned about this uh, incredible automobile. James Page grew up in the Southwest England area and inherited his passion for cars from his father. He worked for Classics Monthly Magazine for four years before leaving in 2011 to become deputy editor of Classic and Sports Car Magazine I've read for many years. He later spent two years as editor of CNSC before leaving in 2016 to become a freelancer, put a shingle up outside of his home. Since then, he's continued to write for Classic and Sports Car as well as publications including Octane, Aston, and he edits the monthly magazine for the E-Type Club and XK Club. He hangs out with some cool cars. Uh, he also has written four books for Porter Press, our friends there, and edited many, many more. The latest of which we're going to be talking about today, which is titled Ultimate Ferrari 250 GTO. We'll be back in just a minute to learn more about the GTO. But first, a word from our valued sponsors. So sit tight and we'll be right back. The best way to protect and preserve your vehicles, along with the meanings and memories and experience that they give you, is with a quality-made, custom-fit car cover from my friends at Covercraft. I purchased my first Covercraft cover from my 1967 Gia way back when I was in high school in 1975. At Covercraft.com, you'll find a multitude of indoor options, including form fit, fleece satin, and their very unique view shield. That's right, you can see your car right through the cover. But it's the sun that you really need to worry about. Quality outdoor options include Weather Shield HD and HP, Sunbrella, Reflect, Carhartt, Evolution, and NOAA. 
Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft too. Your cover is custom tailored for your special vehicles and manufactured with the quality and attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. And I've got a great deal for you. If you use the code yeah 21 at Covercraft.com, they'll give you 10% off compliments of cars. Yeah, that's right. 10% off. Simply use the code yeah 21 yeah 21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. I was tired of my rates for my collector car insurance going up every year for no explainable reason. My carrier seemed to be turning into a media company versus an insurance company, and I realized that a portion of my policy premium was paying for all those so-called free media goodies. So I did my homework, I talked to knowledgeable collectors, shopped around, and discovered American Collectors Insurance. They've been serving the collector car hobby since 1976. You last that long by properly serving your customers' insurance need, not with a lot of fluff. ACI is ranked the number one online collector car insurance provider according to Google, Trustpilot, Facebook, and they offer their real person guarantee live support. No never-ending phone loops when you need help. Plus, because you don't use your classic car as a daily driver, you could save up to 40% compared to regular auto insurance. American Collectors Insurance provides agreed value policies. So if you experience a total loss to your collector vehicle or it's stolen, you'll be paid the amount listed on your declaration page, less any deductibles, of course. No ifs, ands, or buts. Give them a call today and ask for your free quote at 866-A-C-I-Y-E-A-H. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine, Mark Greens, at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance, classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. All right, we're back. So, James, let's go a little deeper into the corner with this Ferrari GTO and talk more about all the things that you learned, because I agree with you. So much has been written about this car. You kind of think, wow, what else can you do? So let's start with the design and development in the early prototypes, because my understanding is they built a couple prototypes of these cars. It was originally designed, I think, as a a Group 3 GT Touring to rival things like the uh, Shelby Cobra, the Jaguar E-Type, and then, of course, the Aston Martin DP214. So let's first talk about the early parts of putting this car together, the prototypes, for example, uh, and what Ferrari was up to. The GTO really was the the end of a long line of great Ferrari GT cars. The 250 GT line stretched back to 1956. And there was a long line of competition Berlinettas that had huge success in the late 1950s, early 1960s. They won the Tour de France nine times in a row. And the Tour de France was one of the most grueling events of that period. It went all over France. You had hill climbs, circuit races, road sections, thousands of miles. It was grueling for the drivers as well as the, as well as the cars. And really, the fact that the 250 GT line was so successful on that event is really proof of, the, of, of how good a car that was. And when you got into 1961, the 250 GT, the Berlinettas, the competition Berlinettas had developed into the short wheelbase, which very famous car, rightly revered in Ferrari history and very successful through 1960 and 61. Then in 1961, the Jaguar E-Type appeared. And back in Marinello, Ferrari thought 
okay, for the 1962 250 GT, we're going to have to we're going to have to raise our game. We're going to have to produce something special. So, using the short wheelbase as the basis for it, it was done by really a small group of people at Ferrari. It was an you know an in-house job in the Gestione Sportiva, the sporting department at Ferrari, and they really developed the 250 GT to its ultimate form. And that was that was the GTO, which uh, which made its debut in 1962. One of the important things was the fact that the World Sports Car Championship was changing for 1962. So rather than being for sports racers, they were going to have the International Championship for GT manufacturers. So for 1962, the World Sports Car Championship, in effect, was being run for GT cars. And mm. so Ferrari suddenly hit the ground running. You know, they came in in 1962 with the GTO. Jaguar were nowhere near as committed to their competition program as Ferrari were. So the E-Type quickly got left behind, even though they later developed the lightweight E-Type. Really, it wasn't a match for the GTO. Over in the States, uh, towards the end of 62, Carroll Shelby got the Cobra homologated. And then really starting in short distance domestic US racing, the Cobra was successful straight away. It took a couple of years for them to translate that success onto the international stage, but eventually eventually they did. But by that point, the GTO had won three consecutive GT World Championships, 1962, 63, and 64, which was, considering the pace of motorsport development at that time, was a, a remarkable achievement for the GTO. No doubt. Let's go back to some of the prototypes because there were some interesting things. Reading in your book, there were two prototypes, basically, they built. And the second one I love because the, the, I think the press called it the monster, uh, Il Mostro, uh, uh, or they call it the anteater because it was kind of a weird thing. And a lot of prototypes are. They, they tack on a lot of things and do some goofy stuff. And those first prototypes, I understand, were raced at Le Mans. The first one didn't, didn't finish the race. I think the engine expired or something. And then Daytona. There was a three-hour race there as well. Can you talk a little bit about the prototypes before the car that we think of the GTO today? And by the way, how many GTOs were really built? Because I saw, I think it was 22 or 24 of them at Laguna Seca when Ferrari was the featured mark years ago, all on the track together racing. It blew my mind. Yeah, that's a pretty good percentage of them. There were 36, 36 250 GTOs. There was then a small run of four-litre cars as well, but there were 36 250 GTOs, three-litre car. The prototypes, the two cars you're referring to, one was really a sort of what we'd refer to as a missing link between short wheelbase and GTO. And that was the car that ran at Le Mans uh, in 1961. And that used quite a lot of the engine technology that was later found in the GTO, but with a different body shape. And then the the other car that you referred to there, Il Mostro, that was really the rough and ready GTO prototype. They took a car and really shrink wrapped the bodywork around the components. So, again, that was developed in-house at Ferrari. You can tell from looking at photographs that a coach builder or a, you know, a, a, a Scaglietti or a Pininfarina had nothing to do with it at that point. It was very rough and ready, and you can see all the hammer marks, and it's very much an engineer's design car rather than a coach builder's design car. But the basic or the fundamental shape, certainly at the front end, was there. And, and that car ran at Monza in late 1961. 
and was tested by Sterling Moss at Monza, in fact. And that really was the basis for the car that became the GTO, Il Mostro, like you say, the, the anteater. Uh, if you see photographs of it, you'll know why it gained those those nicknames. It was very rough and ready. And then later on, you know, it, it got refined, obviously, uh, into the shape that we now all know as the uh, as the 1962 GTO shape. Yeah. I want to talk about the engine, but let's jump since we're on the track of design here. Originally, I think it was uh, Bizzarini, uh, Giotto Bizzarini, who was involved in, but there was a big shakeup at Ferrari uh, in 62. And uh, I think uh, he fired almost the whole team and a whole new engineer had to come in, right? Yeah. So uh, Bizzarini led the initial design of the GTO. It was only a small team at, at Ferrari and Bizzarini led that design team until late 1961 when what is referred to as the uh, as the palace coup at Ferrari. Yeah. When it really depends whose version of history you believe. It's one of those Ferrari myths that I don't know whether we'll ever get to the um ever get to the bottom of it, but a number of senior engineers and senior figures at Ferrari were either fired by Enzo or they walked out, depending on who you believe. And the the sticking point was Enzo's wife, Laura. That's what I'd heard. And they believed she was meddling too yeah. much in uh, racing activities. And eventually there was this walkout or this this mass firing. And it was left. Bizzarini was one of those who left. And into the breach stepped a very young Mauro Forgieri, who later became obviously a legendary figure in Ferrari history. And it was left to Forgieri to finish the design and the development of the GTO. Um, the way he tells it, I think Marrow was still only 26 years of age, I believe. Wow. And suddenly he was in charge. Yeah, I was like, hey, all those guys are out. You're in. Make it exactly. work. Can you imagine the pressure on that guy's shoulders? Exactly. Especially when you think it wasn't just the GTO project. He had Formula One project to run. Oh, he had that's right. That little thing run. over there. <laughs> exactly. So it was a, it was a huge thing. But yeah, Fogari came in, was given the responsibility. And then and in early 1962, he was in charge of, of really refining and finalizing the GTO. Now, Scaglietti was involved in that final design. Is that right? Yeah. So Scaglietti built the bodies basically, and refine and refine the bodies. So it was very much an in-house Ferrari project, but then really just to refine the shape um, and produce the bodies. Yes, it was it was Scaglietti that did that work. Is there any one person that was ever given the credit for that beautiful, what is now an iconic design? I, mean, I think every little boy from my era drew that shape on their in their notebook when they were supposed to be listening to the teacher because it just has all those elements and, and everything that came together. Or was it mostly just a big collaboration at that point? It was a collaboration. And it's the important point, I think, is that it wasn't really styled as such mm. in inverted commas. It was a case of function rather than form. So the engine was moved back in the chassis. It gained dry sump lubrication um, so they could they could lower it. And basically, they then shrink wrapped the bodywork around all of the major components. So it wasn't it wasn't styled to look nice. If you uh, if you see what I mean, it was really that shape came from what they wanted to do aerodynamically with the car and what they were able to do with the major components in terms of lowering everything and optimizing the center of gravity and so on. So you could almost say that the fact that it looked so spectacular 
was almost it, it was a secondary concern that the, the, the main concern was getting something that was aerodynamically effective and would be effective as a competition car. What comes to mind is, of course, Peter Brock's Daytona Coupe and how that car was designed to be effective on the race course, but looked maybe a little funky. Now, whether the Ferrari GTO ever looked a little funky, I don't know about that. But it has a little bit of that same chopped off back end that the Daytona had. So again, that shrink wrapping and making the car faster and work at, in endurance racing was the way to be. Yeah, and it, it it was an interesting time for, for racing car design as well, for competition car design, because if you look at the Jaguar E-Type, beautiful shape though that is, it's not as aerodynamically efficient in terms of circuit racing mm -hmm. as the Daytona Coupe or the GTO. Yeah. Um, because like you say, they were moving to those chopped off tails to reduce lift um, at the rear of the car. And the, the Jaguar was basically concerned with reducing drag. Mm. Um, yeah. But everybody else was really starting to move into reducing lift, which obviously became the beginnings of creating actual downforce, which came a few years later. But yes, it was it was a Really interesting time. You look at the cars that the GTO raced against. The, the Daytona Coupe is the is is the main one, obviously, but the Project Aston Martins as well. And just how quickly competition car design was moving at that point makes it doubly impressive that the GTO was really so dominant for three years because everything was moving very very fast by them. Well, let's go back to the engine because you say. This car came from previous success going back to 1956. And you think of the Tipo 168, uh, the 62 comp engine, the, the three liter V12 that was so successful with all those cars, basically plopping that into this new car. So they're kind of working with old technology or were there some evolutions happening at the same time? Yeah, the, the, the car, was, uh, the engine was constantly being was constantly being updated all the way through the late 1950s and then into the short wheelbase as well. It, it was, even though it was basically the same Colombo designed V12, it was constantly being refined, constantly being updated because this was what Ferrari was committed to. They were committed to going racing. Fogari said uh, when I contacted him that the reason that Ferrari was able to be so dominant in that period is that they were or you know, racing was everything to them. So they were always developing, always upgrading, always finding better ways to do things in a way that Jaguar and Aston Martin just weren't in that period. And so the engine, it's a fabulous engine. And it, it, you think of what it did in the late 1950s and early, early 60s, that Colombo V12. It's a, it's a fabulous piece of engineering. And the reason it was so good in the GTO is that everybody you speak to who's raced a GTO or who owns a GTO talks about balance. And it wasn't the most powerful engine out there, but it was perfectly in harmony with the chassis, with the gearbox, with the brakes, and everything Everything came together. People who raced the E-Type as well said, well, the E-Type had more torque, but the chassis wasn't so good. You really had to have the Ferrari engine singing between five and seven and a half thousand RPM to make it do anything. But once you did, it was just, uh, it was just a fabulous engine. And importantly for the time reliable it was it was almost a bulletproof engine and so it, it's a key part of what made the gto special but it was the fact really that it worked in harmony with all of the other design elements and mechanical elements that made it so strong when you look back at the 250 trs the testarossas and the success in those cars same engine basically being brought forward 
and you, you open the hoods of both those cars side by side and they're just absolutely stunning. And I've had several guests on the show who own 250 GTOs that talk about this wonderful balance and, and how they're so special. And we'll get into collectability in a second. Well, let's let's go into challenges here a little bit. And we're going to take a short break because I want to get into big obstacles that they were facing with this car and the evolution. We talked a little bit about that. Things moving so fast. But let's take a short break first, catch our breath. Since we're in the GTO, holy cow, it takes your breath away, right? <laughs> and, we'll be, and we'll be right back. What began as a charitable car show has grown into the world's greatest collector car auctions, raising over $133 million for charitable organizations to date. For nearly 50 years, automotive enthusiasts from all over the world have enjoyed the Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, and I'm a huge fan. Regarded as the barometer of the collector car industry, their auctions are world-class lifestyle events where thousands of the world's most sought-after unique and valuable automobiles cross the block in front of a global audience, in person, on TV, or streamed online. Barrett-Jackson produces the world's greatest collector car auctions in Scottsdale, Arizona, Palm Beach, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and new for 2021, Houston, Texas. The excitement of Barrett-Jackson auctions is contagious and a unique experience is not to be missed. And be sure to visit BarrettJackson.com today. Barrett Jackson, the world's greatest collector car auctions. So when you talk about challenges, when you were writing this book, what were some of the many challenges that Ferrari faced when they got this car on the track, they got it out there going? Uh, were there some things that stood out for you that maybe were a surprise? I don't know really whether you could say challenges as such. I mean, like I said, they, they were reacting to the to the E-Type's appearance in 1961. And it was clear that the E-Type was going to cause the short wheelbase, the previous model of 250 GT Berlinetta, a few problems. But the the GTO moved the Berlinetta concept on so much that even though the E-Type could give it a run for its money in certain events, you know, there were some events in the UK where the E-Type, certainly in lightweight form in, in 1963, could give the GTO a bit of um, a run. a bit of a run for its money. But really through 62, the GTO was was dominant, was uh, was utterly dominant. And it scored maximum points every time out in the World Championship in 1962. Moving into 63, and particularly 64, the Cobra started to become more of a more of a headache for Ferrari, more of a challenge. But really when it was first introduced, the GTO basically swept aside its competition. It was um, it was so far ahead of uh, uh, ahead of its competition that yeah, it, it dominated through '62. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Now there were some variants in related models that came later later because as we see with race cars after one season is done they're almost obsolete usually and they've got to come up with something new because everybody now knows your secrets and okay now we got to put that into our cars there's a couple that come to mind and i'm wondering what you learned about these things the 330 gto specials the lmb the 275 gtbc specialities and of course that very famous G uh, 250 GT SWB bread van, I guess they called it, which, which people <laughs> yeah. look at that thing and they go, what were they thinking? Uh, were there some, some of these variants that, that in your, in your studies of the car and then writing of the book that stood out for you? The short wheelbase is uh, the, the bread van is a funny one because that is directly related to the palace coup that we, 
that we spoke about. So after the Palace coup and Bizzarini and, and, and the other guys left, in early 1962, a team called ATS was set up. And Count Volpe was one of Enzo's best customers in the early 1960s. And he'd ordered two GTOs for 1962. And Enzo then got to hear about Volpe's financial involvement with ATS, which had been set up by some of the people who had left Ferrari under a cloud in late 1961. Uh Uh-oh. So that got Volpe into trouble with Enzo. And Enzo said, no, I'm not going to deliver your two GTOs. You can't have them. So Volpe goes to Bizzarini and says, "Okay, I want you to turn my short wheelbase that he already owned, chassis 2819 GT, into a car that can beat the GTOs. And so a lot of the GTO modifications were incorporated into the bread van. They came up with this amazing body shape, which gained it its nickname. It didn't gain the five-speed gearbox that the GTO that the GTO had because there was really no point in them going to Ferrari and saying, "Hi, we're building this car that we think <laughs> is going to beat the GTOs. Would you mind selling us the latest transmission?" That wasn't going to happen, so they had to keep the fo- the four-speed gearbox from the uh, from the short wheelbase. But that car was was quick, but it was very hastily put together and was not reliable, mm. uh, basically. Uh, so it's a, a great story. A brilliant story, but yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, in, in terms of racing, it wasn't the GTO beta uh, that Volpe that Volpe was hoping for. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this ties so so well with Enzo's entire focus on winning races and not really building cars for people. And the fact that somebody would order two of the best race cars, taking F1 aside, say, but that was factory deal. And he'd go, mm, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not going to sell you my cars. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you had a board of directors, they go, wait, wait, we got to make some money here, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, what Enzo said went in those days. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah he was the king. Uh, absolutely. And I love that 275 GTB, this, the C. I mean, it's just a beautiful car, too. Yeah, that came, yeah, that came slightly later. In 62, uh, they built um, the 4-litre, uh, the, the 330 GTO, it's called now. It's not, it was never referred to as a 330 GTO in period. But at Nürburgring and Le Mans in 1962, they entered this, in effect, 4-litre version of a GTO. Um, that had to run in the um, in the prototype class. It wasn't a homologated GT car, but a, a very, very quick car. And then that was followed for 1963 by the 330 LM Berlinettas, which had a slightly different body shape that was shared with a, a single GTO had that same body shape. But the, the 330 LM Berlinettas, again, were the, were the four litre development of it. And it's, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about Ferrari just really being competition focus they were always looking to optimize and develop and upgrade where possible and we cover those four liter cars in the book as well they some of them have a um a fascinating history and there's been a lot of confusion about those cars and a lot of speculation about those cars over the years which we've tried to untangle as best we can you mentioned homologation which you brought up several times in in I think in 62, that era, the FIA required builders to build like 100 examples of cars. And there's an old story that's floating around. I wondered if you unveiled this, that you had to build 100 cars, but of course, Enzo had not. So he shuffled the same cars around the, the factory as the FIA guys walked around going, well, there's there's 20 there. And then, oh, let's go over to the other building. And they're 
Was there any truth to that or did they not really have to? No, no. It, it was homologated. It was all above board. Carol Shelby at the time sort of tried to say that, you know, it, it, that they only built however many it was of them. And he was saying, you know, this isn't homologated. And But actually, it was all above board. It, it was homologated as a further de- development of the 250 GT line. And so once you had built more than 100, you were allowed to alter the bodywork, for example. Oh, okay, that's the um, okay. So that was how uh, the Cobra Daytona Coupe got homologated as well. They'd built more than 100 Cobras, so they were allowed to do something different with the body. So they had homologated all of the mechanical upgrades on the GTO, the dry sump system, the five-speed gearbox, the six carburetors. So everything in terms of homologation for the 250 GTO in 1962 was all, all above board and correct. Where he did run into problems was in late 1963 into 64, because his intention then was that the 250 LM would replace the GTO and would be Ferrari's contender in the GT championship. And he tried to say, well, no, 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 it's it's the latest development of the 250 GT line. Uh, And it it wasn't. It was it was a 250p sports prototype with a roof on it. And everybody saw that straight away. And the FAA, FAA said, no, you can't homologate that as a, as a 250 GT. And so Enzo had one of his regular, um, regular tantrums. <laughs> and the GTO was forced to uphold Ferrari's honor in 64, which it, which it managed to do. They upgraded the bodywork. They had the 1964 shape. For, they built three cars new with that body shape, with the 1964 bodywork. They converted four 1962-63 GTOs into the 1964 shape. And so development was continuing into 64 and that enabled the GTO to win its third win its third championship. But yes, it was the it was the LM where where Ferrari really pushed the homologation envelope a little too far and they came unstuck. Came unstuck, yeah. When you think about the classic Ferrari GTO, this those basic cars, I mean call them a basic car, was there any weak link? To those race cars, was there any one part that they never quite got right? I don't think there was, to be honest. I think from having spoken to drivers and owners, as I said earlier, the the real strength of the GTO was the fact that it didn't have any weaknesses. It was it had a good gearbox, it handled well, it stopped well, it was aerodynamically good, the engine was good, it was reliable. There wasn't really anything. There was a weak point in it. As, as I mentioned earlier, some guys said that the Jaguar E-Type had more torque. So if you were racing on short UK circuits against a Jaguar lightweight E-Type, the GTO might have been at a slight disadvantage. Mm-hmm. It certainly in the States would have had less torque than the Cobras. So again, it would have been at a disadvantage on short circuits there. But otherwise, no, it, its strength was that it had no weaknesses. Incredible vehicle. Collectability, as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, it really has become the most collectible. If you think about anyone in the world with great collections of cars, having a GTO in that collection is the pinnacle, really, of of cars. And as I mentioned, I've had a couple guests here who own these cars and speak highly about it. Uh, and we ha- all have heard the stories of, well, maybe one sold for $70 million, and now there's starting to be things coming up. Uh, I got to ride back in the, the plane uh, the year that Greg Witten sold his. I think it ended up with commissions being $48.5 million, something like that. And at the time, and I think it still stands, that was the most expensive collector car sold at an auction. I believe and there's some Maybe some stories around that. But I remember talking to Greg about 
like, why'd you let this thing go? And he goes, well, it was just time. I'd had fun with it. I've driven it. I've done a bunch of things. And he looked at me and smiled and said, don't worry. I bought a bunch of cars at auction this trip too. So I'm going back with a whole bunch more than the one I, I came with. In your mind, is there any one GTO that is the most, let's say, collectible based on provenance, people who've driven it, whatever you put into collectability? I am reluctant to... <laughs> to pigeonhole anyone. Yeah, I'm reluctant to place one GTO above another. It's um, hard, I yeah. think they all have They all have an individual story to tell. Mm. Some have got, in inverted commas, better race histories than others. Some um, achieved more success than others. Some had more successful or better known drivers racing them than others. For example, there's one of the 1964-bodied cars was raced by basically the in that year's entire ferrari formula one team really wow that year yes i mean it it was a bit little bit like i don't know coming forward into the early 2000s it would have been a bit like michael schumacher driving your 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 gto whilst he was driving in formula one so things like that i know that there are guys who who place a great importance on that and who will talk about the provenance of a car and the provenance of a car is is very important what it did in period Mm. where it raced who drove it but what i found in writing the book was that they they've all got a story yeah they've all got a story to tell they're all special some may have done four races some may have done dozens and dozens of races there were guys racing them in italian hill climbing who were using them every weekend and they they racked up race after race after race there were other other cars like i say they only raced three or four times but those races m- might have been Reims, Spa, and Le Mans. And so there you're talking about quality, for want of a better way of putting it, rather than quantity. So, yeah, th- those things those things have become increasingly important over the years, the provenance of a car and the individual history of a car. But, you know, if somebody came to me and said, here, take this GTO that <laughs> yeah. did one race with some guy you've never heard of, I'd still take it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I would guess so. I kind of think so, yeah. You're going to need one of those big golfer checks, though, those giant ones they give you. Lots of of zeros. Are there any GTOs that were built that were never raced that are still truly all original? Oh, you're going to drag me into controversial territory. (laughs) Am I? Um, Isn't that what I'm supposed to do as an interviewer? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They, They all have a race history, and they were all built as competition cars. And if a car is built as a competition car, it's going to pick up knocks and scrapes and dents. And one of the uh, guys that I spoke to who looks after uh, who, who looks after the GTO for its owner said that when they came to restore it about 15 years ago, they wanted to look at early photographs of the car to see what shape they should be restoring it to and what combination of vents and intakes and lights they should be restoring it to because there were various combinations of how many vents it had, what shape vents it had, and so on. And he said they discovered that in the first year of its life, it had three different nose treatments. Wow. (laughs) So he said, really, what are we restoring it to? Do we restore it to this one or that other one or this other one here? And so something like originality for a car that was built as a competition car, 
I, I think is I think is difficult. Um, a guy called Jim McNeil has owned his GTO for more than fifty years now, mm-hmm. and Jim's car was raced hard in period. It was raced by a guy called Tommy Hitchcock, and it suffered various accidents. Um, it was actually crashed at Goodwood in 1962 by by John Surtees, and then suffered various accidents in 1963. But every time, it went back to Ferrari to be fixed. Mm. And so Jim said to me, I didn't worry that the car had been raced and it had been crashed because I knew it had been fixed properly by Ferrari every time. And he said, if you're expecting a car to be all absolutely original and absolutely as it was when it left the factory brand new, you haven't been around many competition cars. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So he said stuff like that. Doesn't happen. Yeah. It's not a concern for him. It's no. um if if cars are going to be raced, they're gonna be they're gonna be crashed yep. as well. Absolutely. Well, the book is titled Ultimate Ferrari 250 GTO, uh, of course, by our guest today, James Page. Now, my understanding is there's a couple of variations you can buy this book in. Is that right? Like a, a collector yes. edition and that's right. So there's um yes, there's the limited edition, which is the I guess for want of a better way of putting it, the standard edition. But yes, there is a collector's edition as well that has got uh, the content is the same in both. Um, but for the collector's edition, they're signed by David Piper and Peter Sutcliffe, as well as myself and and Keith Blumel, who acted as a consultant on the book and was was fabulous. You know, Keith is a very well respected authority in the historic Ferrari world, and uh, he was a massive help. But yes, the there is a collector's edition available as well. There's different slipcase, different cover. And yes, yeah, signed by David Piper and Peter Sutcliffe. That's pretty cool. Now, as of today, July 22nd, the book's available? Yes, it is. Yep. Okay. Yep. And where's the best place where uh, listeners can go get a copy? Because this has got to be on every collector's shelf. I mean, this is the the quintessential GTO book in my mind. Uh, let's hope so. It's um, You can go directly to the Porter Press website. Um, and you can order it directly from directly from the publisher from Porter Press. Yeah, my great friends there, they do some amazing books. And this is another one in a long line of wonderful books. We're going to take one more short break. We come back. Before I let you go today, James, we're going to go on the ultimate GTO drive. So I've done a little twist to this question. So keep your seatbelts <laughs> on. We'll be right back. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual informed, reasoned opinion based on firsthand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey and be sure to use the code cars. Yeah. When you subscribe and they'll give you $10 off. Boom. Linkage geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at linkagemag.com. All right, James. So I typically ask my guests about the ultimate drive. Now, since you're a returning guest, we're going to twist this around a little bit and focus on GTO. So I'm going to allow you to pick the ultimate GTO. If you could think about all the cars that you studied and researched and went through, you can have any one of them and 
next to you, either as a passenger, as a driver, you get to pick a GTO driver, someone who actually raced one of these cars you get to go with. And I'm going to add a third element to this. What track are you going to be on? So there's kind of a three-parter here with your ultimate drive in the ultimate collectible race car. So what's it going to look like for you? Let's start with let's start with the driver. I think that's more interesting, whether you're the driver or the passenger, but the person you want to go with. Who was a Ferrari GTO driver racer that you'd like to be with? Wow, that's a difficult one to narrow down to. I'll bet. Maybe just for one. just for today. I think John Surtees would have to be would have to be one. John raced GTOs obviously in in period. He raced them uh, in '62 before he was a works Ferrari driver. He then raced them while he was a works Ferrari driver. He raced them in '64 when he won the Formula One World Championship. And the guys at Maranello Concessionaires rated him as the, the the best driver they had and i was lucky enough to um to meet john a few times before he passed away and he had this reputation in period of being a, a slightly prickly character uh-huh. but i found him absolutely delightful he was such a he was a really warm a, a warm character he, he must have mellowed in old age i guess the times that i met john and, and talked with him was always fascinating and so i think he would yeah, I think I'd have him as the driver. I think that would be a good choice. I think so. Now, is there one GTO in particular? Maybe the cars that he drove, the specific cars that he raced in? Yeah, I mean, th- that would be... Uh, he drove various uh, GTOs, one of which was the car that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's been owned by Jim McNeil for a long time. And it was it was raced by Surtees in 1962, then raced by Tommy Hitchcock in, in 63. Surtees did then race a 64-body GTO that year, but I'd I'd have him in the uh, in the 62-bodied car. Surtees in in that car that would be that would be a good combination. Now you've got to think about which circuit. Yeah, if if you could get him to spend some laps with you, uh, enjoying uh, the drive. Is there one particular track that you'd love to? It's a difficult one because GTOs had success in so many various places and events they were good on in in short races on uk circuits they were good in world championship level races on long circuits they were good on the tour de france but i think if you john surtees could drive me around spa Mm. (laughs) wouldn't that be cool yeah in in the gto that he campaigned in in 1962 that would be yeah that would be up there that would be a pretty cool thing to do no kidding Oh my gosh, I can hear it now. Well, you've taken us on a very cool ride. We could talk about GTOs all day long, but I want people to get their hands on your book so they can learn a lot more about what you learned putting this together. So thank you for writing this and making it so cool. Before I let you go, there may be a parting piece of wisdom or advice or thoughts you might have about the Ferrari GTO. The the one thing I learned through this was really to keep to keep an open mind and to keep a willingness to a willingness to learn as well. Like I said right at the beginning, people said, well, what else is there to write about GTOs? Mm-hmm. And I had a great deal of help, not only from Keith Blumel, like I said, but also from Alexi Callier, who's a great Mark enthusiast who lives in Belgium. I went over to see Alexi a couple of times um, to look through his archive whilst I was writing the book. And Alexi said to me, you can't be a Xerox historian copying what went before. Ah. So I was always very conscious of not just accepting what had been written before about GTOs. And I don't think there are many 
of the individual GTOs for which we didn't find a new race result or we didn't do a new interview or we didn't clarify the ownership history slightly or correct a long-standing misconception about a car. There was the more we looked into it, the more there was to to learn. So you've really got to keep that keep that open mind and hopefully we've come up with a lot of a lot of new information for this book. And that was that was really one of the goals was to was to come up with something something new about the GTO. We've we've gone into a lot of detail, for example, about Italian hill climbing. The the nice folk at the Revs Institute were very helpful in terms of of uh, scanning issues of Italian magazines, and I'd sit there with Google Translate and uh, try and translate all these Italian reports. But that helped us gain a really good understanding of how the cars were used in Italian hill climbing as well. And I travelled to Brussels to meet Claude Dubois, who raced um, wow. GTO period, and Claude was fantastic. So it's it's really just yeah a willingness to be to be open-minded and not just accept what has gone before. That was a, that was a, a key element of writing this book. I love Alexi's quote. You can't be a Xerox historian. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Many times since. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Are there ways for people to keep up with you or follow you or is the best way to go through Porter Press and, and buy your books? Yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, I'm not very good with keeping up to date with social media and all that sort of thing. I am Lucky on Instagram. You. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. so you do have an Instagram. Okay. I do have an Instagram, J-A-L page 1977. But yeah, I'd, I'm I'm not a great social media person. So yes, via Porter Press and, and, and the books on there would be perfect. Well, you're spending your time doing cool things and wasting it on social media. So good for you. <laughs> good for you. Listeners, you can find everything on James page, show notes page uh, here on Cars. Yeah. Also, you can go back if you missed my talk with him before, you'll find it uh, on the Cars. Yeah website. So uh, check it out for sure and get your hands on this new book. Absolutely fantastic about the uh, iconic mighty Ferrari GTO. I want to thank my good friends at Porter Press for putting us together. And of course, Rebecca Leopard, who has put us together before. So she always brings me some great guests. Thank you, Rebecca. James, hey, thanks for uh, diving in here with us today and sharing more about the GTO. Great to see you again. And uh, now that things are opening up in the world, we'll get out and have some more fun. You guys there in the UK are uh, finally free a bit. Uh, as we are now. So uh, onward and upward. Uh, good health to you and your family. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks for having me, Mark. Much appreciated. You're welcome. This has been fun. GTO, yeah. Today's vehicles are essentially computers on wheels, and it takes more than a wrench and oil to keep them humming. That's why Cars Yeah! supports TechForce Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to driving tomorrow's workforce of skilled technicians forward. Techs keep our cars, trucks, airplanes, and fleets rolling. Yet there's a massive tech shortage because many young people don't know it's no longer a blue-collar job. Today, it's a new-collar career. It involves computers, technology, it's in high demand, you get paid really well, and you can live and work anywhere in the country. I know you're passionate about cars, trucks, and motorcycles, and you can help pass that passion on to the next generation of techs so our rides keep rolling down the road. Visit techforce.org today and learn how. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up! 
a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!